Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics, with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Mark, (laughs) great to be with you again. We got so much to talk about, so little time. We're kind of cracking up because we've got a a great friend of ours uh, that we brought on tonight. Uh, to talk with. And this guy, I think, has got the distinction as the single most experienced COVID doc in the United States of America, maybe in the entire world. And I'm talking about Dr. Brian Tyson, who's a board-certified family doc. He practices out in El Centro, California, wherever that is. And uh, boy, he sees a lot of patients and just has done fantastic work as one of America's frontline doctors. So Brian, welcome, and thanks so much for taking time out of your evening to talk with us. Hey, thanks, Jeff, for having me. Thanks, Mark. Listen, I introduced you as the most experienced uh, COVID doc. I think that's true. Um, how, have you, how, how have you been able to do that? Tell us about your experience and how you got into the COVID business. Well, um, you know, we started with the Imperial Valley being the hotspot of COVID when it first started. Um, And Imperial Valley is, if you want to look on the map, it's between San Diego and Yuma, Arizona. Uh, It's a desert, uh, but it's a border town to Mexicali. Uh, Just south of us, Mexicali has about two and a half million residents. And it's not just Mexican residents. We have a lot of Americans who go and retire down into Mexicali because of the cost of living is so cheap. Uh, So, you know, I, I want to make that distinction. So when COVID first hit, um, it hit it hit our area pretty hard, um, and we are one of the well, actually, we are the poorest economically uh, county in the United States. So we didn't have very many resources. We didn't have um, a lot of help. Um, we had just opened up our urgent care about a year and a half ago, and we're the only basically level one urgent care center uh, in the whole Imperial uh, Valley. So when when COVID hit, it hit us pretty hard. Uh, we were seeing two to three hundred patients a day. Um, it was me and two other nurse practitioners. Um, so we, we popped up a basically a carport and turned it into a parking lot clinic. Um, and we had people just lined up around the block all the way around uh, Costco. Um, I mean, the lines were just were just incredible to try to, you know, take this take take this virus head on. Um, you know, uh, you guys know me very well. Um, I'm a hands on guy. I don't like sitting in the background. Um, I got to see things. I got to feel things. I got to touch things. I got to hear things. And we started noticing um, before we even even had PCR testing at that time, uh, chest x-rays were basically diagnostic for COVID-19. Um, so, you know, a lot of our patients, uh, we saw them, we brought them into the clinic, we diagnosed them with chest x-ray, we started treatment uh, based on the Zelenko protocol um, that uh, they were using and Dr. Uh, Rao from uh, France when he he first started saying hydroxychloroquine uh, was working. Uh, We looked up the paper uh, in 2005 that said chloroquine was a potent inhibitor of the SARS coronavirus and it spread. So we jumped on board and we started treating everything that we saw. And I say what we saw. What I saw was inflammation and we treated inflammation. What I saw was pneumonia and we treated pneumonia. Uh, What I saw was respiratory uh, problems and so we started using uh, nebulized uh, uh, medications just like we would with asthma. And what we found was actually that these uh, patients responded and they got better. 
Um, some of them got better sooner. Some of them got better later, depending on when they uh, presented to us. We found that those who presented before seven days, uh, we have a 0% mortality. Uh, those who presented after seven days, uh, we had two patients who uh, ended up passing away. Both of those patients ended up uh, admitted to the hospital, though, and uh, they were taken off treatment. Um, we had two more patients who passed away the same day they entered our clinic. Uh, they were just so sick because of the, the CDC guidelines of go home and wait till you can't breathe. Well, they couldn't breathe when they got to our clinic. We called 911, and both of those patients died later that night in the hospital. Um, but that's kind of how it started is, you know, we, we were uh, gung-ho about it. We were a little bit scared about it, but, uh, you know, never fear. You know, uh, medicine is here, and, and we, we did what we were trained to do. Now, how did you get affiliated with America's Frontline Doctors? Um, I have a, a colleague of mine that I uh, was an attending for in residency, Lionel Lee. Uh, and Dr. Lee um, got me involved when we were uh, just basically chit-chatting over uh, what we were doing for COVID treatment. He would uh, bend my ear. He's out of Arizona. Uh, we were pretty close. Uh, so it, it kind of ended up, uh, he put me in contact with um, with the American Frontline Doctors. And uh, we, we kind of just kind of went from there. Awesome. Now, you mentioned the Zelenko protocol. And describe what the Zelenko protocol is. So we started using hydroxychloroquine, Zithromax, and zinc. Um, that's how it started. Uh, we modified it a little bit with the hydroxychloroquine. Uh, we started using 400 milligrams twice a day on day one, and then 200 milligrams three times a day on day two through five. Uh, and then as we saw other things, we added to it. Um, like I said, we started adding steroids early. Um, we give a lot of uh, uh, Tordal with Decadron in our clinic, and we know that Decadron is a potent uh, uh, anti-inflammatory as well as uh, Tordal. So we started actually giving that uh, to our patients that we saw uh, inflammation on chest x-ray. Um, we would use the, the Zithromax to, to prevent both secondary pneumonia and uh, its antiviral and anti-inflammatory effects seem to work out pretty well. Um, we started hearing about some blood clotting issues uh, with the, the mortalities in the hospital, and we added aspirin to that, and we've been using aspirin for quite some time now as well. Brian, you just mentioned in a, in a very humble way an absolutely amazing statistic, and I don't want to let it go without reversing back and emphasizing it because I think it's really quite astounding. You have treated over 6,000 patients who have tested positive for one of these coronavirus variants. And of those patients that you were able to begin treatment with using the Zelenko protocol and, and any other protocols that you've been putting into place since, you have experienced a 100% success rate in saving their lives. Is that correct? Yeah, if they presented before day seven. So those, so those anything in the first week. If they presented in the first week, we have a 0% mortality. Yes, 100% success rate. So I, I know you, and I've seen your clinic. I, I, you gave me a tour of your clinic. I know that you're a real person, that you have a real practice and real people. You're, you're not a fiction. Today I went to see my barber, and I said to him, you know, I know a doctor here in California who's treated more patients with this disease than any other doctor in the U.S., and I quoted that statistic. And he looked at me, and he just stared and said, that's just anecdotal. <laughs> 
Now, how, how do you feel and how do you respond to these kind of reactions that I think are quite common when you and others discuss how successful you've been with early treatment and it's just waved away as if it's just some sort of aberration or some sort of anecdotal story as if it doesn't actually matter? Well, the first thing is I would tell anybody, if you got a problem with what I'm doing, come, come down and look at, your, at the clinic yourself. You know, come, come, come to my neck of the woods and, and, and let me show you around. Let me, let me show you what, what I do. Number two, the, the biggest problem I have with this is if you don't like or you don't agree with what we're doing, that's fine. Don't ask for it. But stop prohibiting other people from getting the treatment that they want after discussing that with their physician. And I think that's a really strong point to make. I'm not going to tell uh, somebody who I'm not, you know, if, if, I, if, if I'm a, a, a parent or whatever, if I'm a barber, if I'm, if I'm not in the medical field, I'm not going to tell somebody, oh, don't get chemotherapy because um, I think it's bad for you, okay, if you've got cancer. That decision should be made by the patient. The patient, if they want to go through chemotherapy, they should talk to their doctor and they should decide, yes, I want to get chemotherapy or not. It's not up to the public to decide who gets treatment and who doesn't get treatment. It shouldn't be up to the, 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 the public opinion, for that matter, to say, oh, you, don't, uh, uh, you shouldn't be giving that medication because um, I, heard, I heard it doesn't work. Well, if it doesn't work, then what's the difference? If it doesn't work and, and there is no alternative treatment at this point, then you're still going to go home. You're still not going to get any treatment. You're still going to die. But, but the fact is we've been treating this for almost two years now. And, and, and 6,000 patients is no longer anecdotal. Okay, And if you look at study after study after study, even just look at the aspirin study for, for, for what just happened. 20% reduction in mortality, just using aspirin, okay? How about the budesonide study? How about the vitamin D study, okay? How about using anti-inflammatories? We know it's, an, it's a cytokine storm. We know it's an inflammatory disease. So you can't sit there and say, oh, well, you know, that's anecdotal, that's anecdotal, that's anecdotal. Well, it's, it's called medicine, and that's what we've been doing this whole time. We've been practicing medicine. That's, that's what we do. And anybody who doesn't agree with it, that's fine. I'm not telling you, and nobody's telling you, you have to come to my clinic and get treated. Brian, are you seeing any pushback with uh, local pharmacies in uh, dispensing ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine for COVID patients? Um, hydroxychloroquine, not so much. Ivermectin seems to be a, quote, supply issue. Some of the bigger chains, they don't like to prescribe it anymore uh, because that whole uh, hoax about it being horse medicine, um, you know, despite, you know, the CDC recommending everybody who is a refugee from the Middle East or Africa needs to get at least two doses of ivermectin before coming to the States. Um, you know, despite the fact that it won a Nobel Peace Prize for treating river blindness and billions of prescriptions have been given across the world. Um, you know, we give amoxicillin to cats. That doesn't make amoxicillin a cat medication. Um, but, you know, out here, they, they know our success and they can't refute the success because they have patients after patients after patients and testimony after testimony that say our treatment works with between me and Dr. George Farid, um, our reputations precede us in, in these pharmacies. And so 
they're they're not giving us pushback anymore. Are you seeing a difference at all with vaccinated versus unvaccinated people that are getting ill? Um, at this point, it's pretty much even. I think the vaccine has uh, done its job for the alpha variant, but it's not working uh, very well with this Delta variant. And I think that's kind of goes what you're seeing across the world and, and even the United States at this point. Uh, but treatment still works whether you're vaccinated or not vaccinated. I was thinking about these new treatments. Obviously, this uh, vaccine is becoming less and less effective as time goes on, and we can see it in the uh, return rates of patients who have had shots, two, three, and now in Israel, four, and they're still getting sick. Are you noticing a high percentage of what they call breakthrough cases or vaccine failures at your clinic? Yeah, we're about half and half right now. So we had we had 10 cases uh, positive today. Uh, and five, five uh, of them were uh, vaccinated. Um, in my clinic, believe it or not, um, the ones who are actually getting sick of my staff are the ones who's got the vaccine. So this is a big concern that I have. People are saying, well, look, the vaccine isn't perfect. You might get sick. It's also not protective against other people. They might get sick. Ergo, it's not a vaccine, but putting that aside. And yet, People still believe in it because they say, well, it's going to keep you from getting really sick and dying. And yet, as I'm hearing from you and others, people who are getting sick seem to be more often those who've actually already got the vaccine. Now that we have these new treatments that are being promoted by Merck and Pfizer, these pills that everyone is just in love with, that I talk with, there's this interesting discordance that I hear between people who hated the early treatment and now are suddenly in love with this new pill and those that were in love with the vaccines and now think that boosters are actually going to help. And the whole thing is becoming very confusing to me. What do you think and what do you feel uh, towards these new uh, Merck and Pfizer treatments that seem to be uh, taking, uh, you know, sort of this rapture of all of the uh, the public as if this is our, our, our new vaccine cure? Well, I, I think I think people need to realize that, number one, there's there's no silver bullet to anything. And the the, the problem with um, using or, or putting all of your eggs in one basket is what happens if that doesn't work? Right. So, you know, sure, the, the, the new antiviral may be um, the next good thing, but there's still other medications that need to be used. You still need to, to use aspirin. You're still going to need to use steroids. You're still going to need to use anti-inflammatories. And again, early treatment is going to be the key. Whether you start these, these new drugs, they're going to have to be given in the first three days, right? We already knew that from Tamiflu and, and, and we've been saying that from, from day one, they, they discounted all of our early treatment in my opinion, to come out with these new drugs so that they can make more money. Um, and, and it's very clear that that seems to be the, the motive behind it. Because, you know, you're talking about Pfizer-Mectin, right? I mean, come on, you know, um, the new Ivermectin. Well, I mean, we know Ivermectin works. We know hydroxychloroquine works. We know zinc works. Um, we know these things have been, have been highly successful. But every time we start gaining ground, those drugs get discounted somehow in the media, but not in, in actual real studies. In falsified studies, sure, if I give somebody four times the dose of Tylenol, they're going to have bad outcomes. Well, the, the study, you know, the recovery trial, when you're giving 800 milligrams twice a day of hydroxychloroquine, 
yeah, you're going to have bad effects. I mean, if I dose you with four grams of vancomycin, your kidneys are going to shut down and you're going to die. That doesn't mean vancomycin is a bad antibiotic. Um, so those are the things that, I mean, we really still need to look at. They may, they may be, um, you know, better safety profiles. I don't know. We, 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 you know, we, we talk about that. Those drugs haven't even been tested. We know ivermectin is safe. We know hydroxychloroquine is safe. So why, why there's such a discount of drugs that are completely safe and cheap, okay, as opposed to, you know, putting things on new expensive unsafe or unproven drugs or therapeutics like the vaccine or these new um, medications coming out. It, it, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. Do you see things changing as we move forward? More people, are, more people have gotten exposed to the illness. More people are getting vaccinated. Is the nature of the patient that's showing up in your clinic different now than it was early on? Well, yeah. I mean, so number one, that's the severity of illness is definitely down, Okay. If in, and if you look at any statistics it, from, from any county across the United States, the first wave had a pretty high death rate. The second wave had, a, had a, a pretty equal mortality rate. The third wave or the delta wave, the mortality rate has been really, really low. Hospitalizations have been really, really low compared to before. Now, yeah, there's people in the hospital. Yes, people have – there are still uh, mortalities. But – like in our county, for example, we had 734 deaths up until uh, March of this year. Well, between uh, March and now October, our death rate is at 756, which is only, you know, about 20, 20 plus patients. Um, now, that's not to discount those 20 plus patients, but it's certainly not what we were seeing, you know, the, the 10 to 15 patients dying a day. Um, back in the, in, in the, the real thick of things. So, you know, when you, when you look at, you know, eight months, you're looking at, uh, what, five patients a month um, as opposed to, you know, 10 to 15 patients a day. That's a huge difference in severity of illness. Your family, Doc, so I know you also treat children. Are you seeing kids with, uh, with COVID as well? And how do they present? Yeah, we're seeing a lot of kids uh, with the Delta variant. Um, it's about, but, but reality is it's still only about 10% of our cough and colds right now. Um, they're doing really well with it. Um, it's no, no different than um, an upper respiratory uh, common cold. Um, rhinovirus is what's predominant in, in our community right now. We're seeing about 90% of our cough and cold cases are uh, rhinovirus, followed by uh, parainfluenza virus, so croups coming back around, and then uh, our, our COVID uh, delta um, you know, cases. We're going to be moving into winter really soon. We're already into fall. And this is when respiratory illness tends to spike. Obviously, flu comes back, we get more colds. One of the concerns that I have is that as people start developing common run-of-the-mill respiratory symptoms of, you know, typical flu and cold, we're going to be alerted by health authorities that we're seeing a third or fourth or God knows what nth wave of coronavirus and that we're going to all be ushered back into our homes and be given multiple booster shots. Do you see any hope in the next six months for some more clarity and truth and accountability in, uh, in public health as we move into the, uh, the high, high risk respiratory illness phase of the, of the seasons? That's a very good question, Mark. And, and I would say it's going to be really dependent on which state you live in. Honestly, 
Um, you know, I, I think even, you know, even out here, the, the mask mandate came back uh, for our county to everybody indoors has to wear a mask. Um, in San Diego, it, it's only the unvaccinated. Well, none of that makes sense at this point. So you're, I, I'm sure they're going to say, you know, as, as soon as everybody starts getting sick again, that, you know, we're going to have to close everything up. Um, because the PCR testing still, the, the, the ones that they've been using, the, where it's, you know, just COVID positive or negative, still I don't think can differentiate between influenza and COVID. Um, the respiratory panels, however, do seem to, to uh, uh, carve those out. Um, example, I have, I have a clinic down the street from me that are getting a lot of false positives. They come to me, I run the PCR panel, and rhinovirus is what's popping up. Um, and, 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 you know, I don't know if these, these tests can differentiate between rhinovirus and, and COVID-19. Um, but the PCR panels, the, the 30 panel and, and, and that we've been using with either the Quistat or we have a company called Health Tracks, um, they seem to be able to differentiate it that out. Um, so I, I don't I don't know, but I would imagine um, unless everybody's using, you know, these PCR panels, which are pretty expensive. Uh, I, I don't see that happening. I see I see, you know, government still trying to in, in, in impose their will onto the, the, the health care system. And if you don't test for it, as we all know, you don't find it. And that's why pneumonia and influenza disappeared last year. So my concern, of course, is that this is going to happen again this year, and we're going to see this so-called spike in uh, third and fourth wave coronavirus, which is actually simply going to be a, 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 an aired testing for flu and colds because we're not looking for them. Yeah, and I think, I think if, if we, we went back to the philosophy of looking at our patients and their symptomatology and stop testing people who, A, don't need to be tested, uh, B, mandating that you know, students and employers test all of their people, we're going to stop finding cases that we don't need to find. That's that's number one. Um, you know, we we've got a beef plant out here that, despite the beef plant being ninety five percent vaccinated, still mandating testing makes no sense whatsoever. And because they get a few positives here and there, one here, one there, they have to test their entire plant every week. It makes absolute no sense. My son. Okay, his his first grade class, one of his students had a sister in fourth grade who tested positive, and therefore all of the first graders then also had to test. Even though she's not in their class, but because her brother was in the class, they sent all the kids home and they had to have three tests before they can go back to school. Like the the, the insanity of these people making these decisions. I, I don't get it because not one of these health provider uh, groups or the school board or anybody has ever come to me and said, hey, what's the best way to do this? You know, it sounds like it's time for Dr. Tyson to run for school board in El Centro. Uh, you know, I, I, I wish, but it, it's it's still I still don't think they would they would listen to me even on the school board. <laughs> So you've gotten a reputation for being uh, maybe the most experienced COVID physician in the country. What are your phones like? Is it, are, do your phones just blow up from calls around the country and people that need help? Yeah, yeah, they're, 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 they're pretty, they're pretty uh, uh, busy. 
Um, you know, the good thing is I've got three clinics now. So I got one in Imperial Beach, I have one in Brawley, and I have one in El Centro. Um, we do uh, telemedicine out of our Imperial Beach uh, Urgent Care, which is Silver Strand Urgent Care. So um, they're able to keep up with all the televisits. Um, I train all of my providers uh, to use the same protocol. We have it typed up. Uh, we know when to use uh, steroids, when not to. Um, and then I look at all their chest x-rays and I go over those cases with them. So there's still a personal touch to it, uh, but we're able to, to service more people uh, using more providers. So what does the future look like for you, Brian? Um, future looks like I've got a seven-year-old uh, birthday party to plan for October 30th. <laughs> and, um, you know, um, hoping that uh, we can continue our work um, with our uh, International COVID uh, Alliance. Um, you know, Mark's been a part of that, and uh, we're, we're going to get you a part of that as well. Um, it looks like our second International COVID Conference is going to be uh, late January. Uh, it looks like Ocala, Florida has, has been the, the, the state. Uh, we don't have a date uh, as of yet, but they're saying late January. Um, we just got to get out the word for early treatment. I mean, you know, physicians need to stop being afraid to treat COVID-19. That's all I got to say. You can take hydroxychloroquine out of the equation. You can take ivermectin out of the conversation. But at least, at least treat these patients with aspirin and steroids and anti-inflammatories. Please, for God's sake, at least do those things. And if, and if you tell me that that's inappropriate, then you need to stop practicing medicine and just go, you know, teach out of medical school and go teach biology or something. You know, because I, I, I don't I don't understand the inability to to at least use those those medications. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, about an hour before we hopped on this call, um, I got a phone call from a patient newly diagnosed with COVID. And it took three different pharmacies before I could finally find one that was willing to dispense ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And that's part of the problem is delaying treatment is harming patients. And for every pharmacy that refuses to dispense ivermectin, that's a patient potentially that is being put at risk. And it's just wrong what's going on. And uh, I've never seen this before in treating any other illness. And what's funny about that, Jeff, is they're okay giving Zithromax, right? They're okay giving steroids, but they're not okay giving hydroxychloroquine. I, I, it's it's, it's mind-blowing. Why did they pick that one drug that we use off-label. Why just that one drug? Why not all of them? If you're going to sit there and tell me there's, it's not proven, well, none of these drugs have been proven. None of them. But yet it's okay to use remdesivir as an emergency use authorization, which still hasn't been proven to work. Okay, It's still got a 25% mortality associated with it. My patients aren't, aren't, don't have a 25% mortality, but you're okay giving remdesivir to patients and having them die but if I give hydroxychloroquine, you're worried about QT prolongation. Okay, well, how about all my rheumatoid arthritis patients before that? How about all my lupus patients before that? Didn't seem to have a problem with the, you know, 4 billion prescriptions we've written before. Now, all of a sudden, it's a problem. But only for COVID, though. Because if you have lupus, you can still get it. And if you have rheumatoid arthritis, I can still prescribe it. But if you have COVID, you can't because that's going to kill you. That's like the whole, you know, you can sit down at a table 
and eat with your mask off, right? Because COVID doesn't attack you when you're sitting down eating, only when you stand up to go to the bathroom, right? You know, if, if you're in school and you're at a school desk, you have to wear a mask. But if you're at a restaurant, you don't have to wear a mask if you're a kid. Makes no sense, right? I mean, come on. Yeah, unfortunately, this is, uh, this is not about the science. It never was. This is about the politics. And um, we've entered a whole new world where politics has entered the healthcare field in a way that's very dangerous for patients, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and, and there has to be accountability. You know, we, we need, you know, patients and, and, and parents need to start holding people accountable. Um, and, and, you know, with the whole California mandates thing, you know, going against the FDA advisory board saying, well, we're going to mandate kids over 12 get this vaccine. Well, what happens when these kids have bad, bad reactions? Who's going to be responsible? Don't sit there and, and tell me I have to vaccinate my kid if you're not going to say I'm going to be responsible if something happens. It's crazy. What are your suggestions moving forward for people that either uh, are unvaccinated but worried about COVID um, or even are, unva- are vaccinated and are realizing that, um, that their vaccination really isn't as good as advertised? Well, I think number one, everybody needs to know early treatments available. That's that's number one. Okay. Number two, uh, get on the medications like zinc D three, okay, quercetin, uh, vitamin C, um, NAC, um, you know, ahead of time. Prime prime your immune system to be healthy. Okay. Um, stay away from things that that are unhealthy, and and you know just just know that. Eventually, this this will be over at some point. Um, and and you know, just just stop stop being stop living in fear. You know, just go out and enjoy your life. Um, you know, don't don't go uh, and 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 listen to what these guys are saying over here because they're they're lying to you. They're just lying to you. Let's talk specifics. How much D three should somebody be on? At least five thousand uh, international units a day. And you mentioned, and you mentioned NAC, N-acetylcysteine. How much of right. that stuff should they be on? 600 milligrams a day. And quercetin? Um, I believe that comes, it depends on the formulation. You can find a quercetin and zinc combination, or you can get it by itself. And I think it's in the, it's either the 500 um, uh, milligram range, but usually it's a, it's a, it's a combination depending on it's, if it's ionized or not. Yeah. And Brian, what are your coordinates? Where can somebody uh, find out more about you, look you up, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you hang out where they can learn more about you? Uh, Twitter's my, my deal. I'm on Twitter. It's BTysonMD. Um, at BTysonMD, that's, that's where you can find me. Um, and then you can look up All Valley Urgent Care uh, in El Centro or uh, Silver Strand Urgent Care in Imperial Beach. If the Dodgers make it, will you be going to the World Series? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm going to stay at Mark's house. Awesome. Brian, listen, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. Keep up the great work. Uh, hope to visit you in El Centro real soon. And um, uh, we'll have to do this again real soon. Awesome. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Informed Dissent with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist, informed dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics.